are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of free speech, open debate, and dare I say, reality in the vast wilderness that is the Biden administration. I'm an investigative journalist, Lee Stranahan, and we're joined today, I believe, is Jason there? Jason, you there? I am indeed. Yes, Lee, how are you? Good. Let me intro you. Sure. We're joined by our guest co-host for today, Jason Goodman from Crowdsource the Truth, here on The Backstory. And our producer, Rod from Philly, has put together another great show. Joined in the first hour by special Sputnik correspondent, Wyatt Reed. Where is Wyatt? Is he in Madrid yet? Rod, do you know? He wasn't, he, let me explain, Jason. He was in Colombia. He's in Spain. He's in Spain now. He's in Spain, okay. So he was in Colombia, then he was in Ecuador, right. and now he's yeah. going to Madrid for the NATO conferences coming up. And we'll talk about that oh, wow. later in the week. But today, it's Ecuador Day, because there's a lot of stuff going on there. So that's the yeah. first hour. Then yeah. the second hour, we've joined by someone named, have you heard of this guy? Charles Hortel. It rings a bell, yes. <laughs> Charles is a friend of Jason's. He does a show with him every week. And tell people about Charles. Charles is an expert in investigating complex fraud. He uh, retired from the world of finance, I believe, at the age of 41, having earned millions of dollars in merger and acquisition and structuring all kinds of complicated deals. And uh, now he has been investigating the Clinton Foundation and has pointed out and developed more evidence from sources in the public domain, really, than any other individual, as far as I'm aware. And, and uh, due to you, he's on the show in the second hour, and he's a great guest, very knowledgeable yeah. person. And mm-hmm. we're privileged to have him, and thank you, Jason, again, for the hookup. My pleasure. Yeah, my and pleasure. We'll be taking your calls as well, 202-521-1320. This, what's the name of the show, Jason? It's The Backstory. Now... Going by my phone blowing up in the past couple hours, the top story is that Ghislaine Maxwell has been sentenced to 20 years. Yep. Did you get all those notices? Well, I was over there. I was sitting in the in the hearing while it was going on. I realized that was going to happen hours before it ended, so I left, gave a report on Crowdsource the Truth. I would say the 20-year sentence for Ghislaine Maxwell, I feel like it's anticlimactic. I don't feel it's long yeah. enough to make anyone's jaw drop, but it's not short enough either. If she was sentenced to a week, right, that would be, right. ooh, ah, or 50 years. But 20 years, yeah. And do you understand what I mean by, meh? Well, sure. I mean, the whole thing is anticlimactic in that I think people expected, first of all, when Epstein was arrested, people thought, okay, this whole thing is going to crack open now. And um, 
obviously then, you know, he allegedly committed suicide. I don't know exactly how you feel about that claim. It seemed to me the photograph of the individual on the gurney that was featured on the cover of the New York Post didn't match the profile of Jeffrey Epstein. But if you say that, it's a conspiracy theory. And, you know, we're not allowed to examine evidence. We're just told what we say. And I guess people sort of felt that this was going to expose maybe the Clintons, maybe Prince Andrew. But I never felt that that was going to happen. A 20-year sentence for Ghislaine Maxwell at age 60. I mean, what is the life expectancy once you go into prison? It's certainly easy to imagine someone living to 80 if they can eat organic food and get fresh air and exercise. But I think if you were rotting in a cell, dying in the next 20 years becomes an increased possibility. Do you know who I would have liked to have seen indicted? You mentioned Prince Andrew or the Clintons. But do you know yeah. who specifically I would like to have seen some action on legally? Dershowitz. No, that's not my answer. Who <laughs> would I like to have seen some action on? Answer, I don't know. someone. Yeah, Why did no right, one? Exactly. Nobody, not one person, hmm. anyone. Do you see what I'm saying, yep. Jason? No, Nobody absolutely. This is a, this is a. It's a deep six, Lee. They're just, first of all, so they go put her in jail, right? And I mean, is anyone going to be surprised if they say, oh, she killed herself. And guess what? All the video cameras were broken. Or if they stick her in solitary confinement. I mean, I know this sounds ridiculous, but just follow me on this speculation for a moment, because there is evidence in the public domain that supports the notion that one or both of these individuals were intelligence assets for the United States, the United Kingdom, Israel, all of the above. We don't really know. But if you have an intelligence asset whose cover is exposed to the world, what do you do about that as the intelligence agency? Well, if you stick them in jail, and then once they're in jail, you put them in solitary confinement, couldn't you remove the person from there and just tell everybody in the jail nothing? And then 20 years from now, no one will remember what happened if she could go live out her life anywhere that she isn't seen in public. Yes. And the Delgers aspect of this is exactly why I think a lot of it's been covered up. I yeah. think it's obviously an intelligence operation. Yeah. People were told that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's obvious. Acosta. Yeah. Alexander yes, Acosta. Acosta. Where did he go? Not Jim Acosta. From CNN, right. but the other Acosta. Well, where is Alexander Acosta? Nobody has seen him since he made that comment and then got fired like the next day. I'm sure he's in some nice big house living a quiet life. Does that make sense? I mean, you would think I'm he sure. would go on to work at a law firm or something, right? That's too not quiet. Now, yeah. the other big story that broke last night that vanished, and I mean vanished, was that 50 people were found dead in a truck in San Antonio, yeah. Texas. It yeah. was 46 last night, but 16 were in the hospital, and I knew it was mm. going to break 50. So today wow. it's 50. But 50 people, a lot of them from Mexico, a certain number from Guatemala, and a small number from Honduras were found dead in a truck because it was 100 plus degrees, 102 degrees in San oh, Antonio. Wow. 
Now, it was breaking news last night, and it was on New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. But I listen to news every day multiple times to prepare for the show. Mm-hmm. It had gone completely. None of the five-minute news summaries mention it. Does that shock you, Jason? 50 deaths I'm, is I'm, a lot of people. It, it, well, you know what? You just gave a detail that I wasn't aware of. I heard about that. But, I, I mean, the fact that they were, like, I guess in there being human trafficked, I mean, they're getting, like, barbecued, slow roasted. What a horrendous death that would be. Yes, exactly. And, and an already crowded truck. And right. what happened was a worker nearby heard screaming. Oh. And went over the truck. And then saw the bodies. So, and let me point out, I'm not blaming them. But I'm saying human trafficking is dangerous. I pointed this out many times before. Yesterday we had Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies on the show. And I've talked to him many times about the people who die in the desert, not in a truck but trying to make it across the desert, for instance. When you encourage human trafficking, Mm -hmm. and I saw a couple of people say, well, they were trying to seek a better life for their families. Okay. I'm not debating that. I'm saying, I think they were encouraged to try to come to this country. I agree. And we have an immigration policy that encourages human trafficking. And that's why I'd yeah. say, and the Biden administration, blood is on their hands. Yeah. Hot blood in this case, boiling blood. You're but, absolutely right. And I'm just saying 50 is a lot of deaths. That's a huge number to put down a memory hole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a fraction of the total, though, Lee, because everything that Joe Biden is doing, I mean, I I know we've said this so many ways and it becomes uh, redundant. But I I mean, Joe Biden is just the biggest disaster to ever occupy the office of the president of the United States. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. We had the great Scott Ritter on the show yesterday, and we talked about a lot of stuff going on with the war and with the G7 soon to be uh-huh. the G20 in a few months, but soon to be NATO, a NATO meeting. And uh, first off, let's update on what's going on with the war. The area of Donbass, the Russians have claimed almost all that area. They took all of Severodonetsk in the past few days. That is completely Russian-controlled territory now. And now... They're trying to get, I'm not going to pronounce the name right, but the city of Lugachansk, I think it's close to that. But it's a city that's across a river from Severodonetsk, and it's on higher ground, and it's, uh, it's an easier city to defend, in a sense, for, for the Ukrainians. So the Russians are starting to take that city. And soon they will have won the entire region. So military victory, there's no one. This is being reported by the Washington Post, Jason. No one is denying the Russians are about to be victorious. 
in this area of Donbass in Ukraine. And there's no one denying they've already taken about 20% of the country of Ukraine is oh. is Russian controlled. That's mm-hmm. a lot. Would you not yeah. say? I would. Th- there was that other story also that's pretty interesting about this alleged shopping mall strike. Have you heard the response from Russia on that? Well, I've seen the maps. Well, here's the, here's the thing. As soon as you hear a story, and by the way, this comes out simultaneously with the Russian victory in Severodonetsk. Right. It suddenly reported that the Russians, those bastards, attacked a shopping mall and killed innocent shoppers. Let me ask a question. Why would Russia do that? Right. And the answer is they're monsters. They're bastards, right? For no reason, well, that's, they'll attack innocent yeah. shoppers. Unless right. that's not the whole story. If you stop and you think about it for a second, a story that comes out that is designed to make people say, those bastards. You see what I'm saying? Uh Uh-huh. You might want to question it. And it turns out that the shopping mall, it does not seem the damage that was done to the mall was largely due to a direct hit, but to a fire. And that the quote-unquote shopping mall is right near a factory that's p- pumping out weapons. Yeah. And that the missile hit, they showed it. It hit in this park near the factory. Right. So it seems like there was a fire at the mall. Well, yeah, no, definitely there was. And there's a lot of pictures on social media and elsewhere showing the mall on fire. But, I mean, we see a pattern here. And the pattern is this. Something happens. There is a war going on. No one denies that. Things blow up. But what we are seeing is Ukraine utilizing largely, at least as far as I see, the mainstream media in the United States and Europe, take these images of things blowing up and say, oh, this is something terrible the Russians did. They killed over a thousand civilians in this shopping mall. Then if you switch over to RT or Sputnik and look at that, I'm looking at RT in this particular case. They break it down and they explain, as you just did, that there's actually a factory that has munitions in it, and that was the target. And a fire at that factory created a fire at this mall. There is no official count of the number of people dead yet, but they point out, they say 59 injured as far as they know so far. But uh, the parking lot at the shopping mall is empty, which is a very good point. How are there a thousand people in the shopping mall if there are no cars there? Yes. And there's a war and going on. Who's going shopping? <laughs> and when Zelensky pointed out, he said there were thousands of children in the mall. Right. That was the right. initial report. Because right. the initial report, you're free to lie big. Does it make sense? Well, like yes, you're going to lie, approach, lie big. It's a technique because from Nazi propaganda and also, uh, what's his name? Bernays. Yes, Edward Bernays. The father of propaganda. And this is a pattern. But let me also say something that I think. I think this has a wearing effect on people. Let me explain what I mean by that. How many times have you heard a story that the end result is you 
people, it's designed to make people say, those bastard Russians, that murderer Putin. How many times now? Every week, every few days, yeah. this is Multiple another story. Times a day. Yeah. And I think at this point, about the 33rd, and I'm not saying that people are denying the story. I'm saying that the people who believe the story care less every time. Does that make sense, Jason? It becomes information overload, yeah. Right, and becomes people... Imagine someone who believes Putin's a monstrous bastard and believes everything Ukraine says and doesn't like Russia one bit. Mm-hmm. By this time, the effect is yawn, yeah, Putin's a bastard. Does that make sense? <laughs> Tell me something I don't know kind of thing, yeah. Right, I mean, I mean this. Another story making Putin out to be a bastard has little, little effect on the propaganda campaign. Does that make sense? Yeah, because people aren't, there's no development. Like normal stories, and, and by story is a bad word, normal events, even this Ghislaine Maxwell thing, there's an arc to it, right? First you hear about it, it's mysterious, you learn more about it, facts, details come out, you start to see it, get a picture of it, and now it's it's ended. Now, I'm not saying it was satisfying, you pointed out, a lot of facts about the whole situation that leave people feeling like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem quite right. If we lived in some alternative universe where Bill Clinton was caused to testify and Prince Andrew was caused to testify and they were now facing criminal charges, people would have right. a sense of fulfillment because you would feel like justice is being served. And here we're all left thinking, well, she's just going to go. I mean, we've become jaded as a society, right? You, you know, if if tonight we hear Ghislaine Maxwell committed suicide and the video cameras were broken, what would anybody do? Nothing. Well, and, and here's the other thing. You worked in the film industry, Jason, yeah. and you, you, you've worked in the entertainment industry for a long time. But anyone who knows stories, I'm going to use a nerdy example. I'll use a Star Wars example. In Star Wars, in Act One, the beginning of the film, we did not have Luke fighting the Death Star. And then right. in Act Three, two hours later, it's Luke fighting Womp Rats. Exactly, trying to go to the Tashi Power Station or whatever. <laughs> right, right, right. That very nerdy response, Jason. The Thank people you. who got it will appreciate it. <laughs> And yeah. a lot of people will have no idea what we're saying, but they'll know we're yeah. nerdy. So yes. what, what I'm saying is you need to make the action rise in a story. Yes. You need to yeah. – it starts low, right? He's fighting Womp Rats in Act 1. He's – right? He's yeah. he's living his aunt and uncle's farm and doing farm work. But then it builds to something big. Like battling the Death Star. There's a progression. They have no your 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 own life, your career, an event. And so let me say this. In terms of the action, Putin doesn't have a lot of places to go. They invaded Ukraine. You know, I'm taking narrative at its value and using their terms. I think it's I think the war is going on since twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. But even taking them at their their terms, 
when they do new things and say, we're going to sanction them because, oh no, look, they killed 50 people at a shopping mall. That doesn't sound, I got to say, every loss of life is a tragedy, blah, 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 right? But Mm -hmm. 50 people dead at a shopping mall, they started by saying it was packed with thousands of children. It's like, oh. I think, yeah. I mean, listen, here's the thing, Lee. Even if people don't quite put it together, two plus two equals four. Even like a dog is smart enough that if you deceive it, it starts to catch on. And what's happening is like, let's say last week, right? Putin was at that St. Petersburg uh, economic, whatever it was. And we've been hearing always, yeah, he's, the news here is saying, oh, he's, you know, he's deranged and he has cancer and he's grabbing a table and he doesn't have long to live. And then he shows up. He, he actually looks very healthy to me for a man of 70 years of age. And he seems to be aging completely normally. And, And like I would say on the, on the side of good health, he gives a speech, his voice is strong. His message is clear. He's on point with everything that he's been saying for the past 20 years. Unlike Joe Biden, who, when you see a close-up of the guy, he looks bad. His skin looks unhealthy. His face looks, you know, his eyes look confused. His words just reveal the fact that he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. So even if people aren't paying attention to the kind of details that you and I are talking about, empty parking lot and the ghost of uh, whatever, you know, People are starting to get this general sense that Putin has not changed in what he's saying. Putin, you know, what they're claiming about him doesn't seem to be true. They say these economic sanctions are going to destroy Russia, but yet somehow the ruble is getting stronger. They say Putin's a crazy madman who goes around killing people all over the place. But yet we see Patrick Lancaster and John Mark Dugan and people like this showing videos of people in these regions who are you know, getting food from the Russian military and medicine and help and all kinds of things. And by the way, people were asking me what's going on with John Mark Dugan because he didn't have video for a few days. He's totally fine. I spoke to him just earlier today. But people Good. catch on that they're lying and that Putin is staying consistent and being truthful. Now, you're talking about Biden's skin. June probably yeah. help him. He needs more showers. Yeah, exactly. With his daughter, probably. Exactly Maybe right. Maybe that's not the best suggestion. <laughs> but Macron is now having to pull him aside and tell him what's what. I mean, he's literally like somebody's grandfather at the 4th of July barbecue. Well, no, where somebody's got to sit with him. Let's not talk about that. Because yeah. Macron pulling Biden aside to talk to him about, and I didn't think that's an example of his daughteriness. It's the only time Macron could tell him the truth, which is this Janet Yellen idea about getting OPEC to put a yeah. to put a price cap on oil worldwide, which OPEC will never do. He yeah. said basically the Saudis and United Arab Emirates they can't produce any more oil. Right. And Biden's been the one who's cut U.S. production. Mm-hmm. He cut a refinery in the past couple of months, while at the same time saying we need more refining capacity. Right. So 
everyone in the G7 is completely out of reality on the military situation in the war and the economic effects. And my my point to cap the point I was making earlier, even if you do, even if you're an American and you hate Russia and you yay Ukraine, about the 15th or 20th time this month you hear Putin's a bastard. Then when you go fill up your car and it's 60 bucks. Yeah. That puts in perspective for you. Yep. And at a certain well, point you to... go, you know, what are you doing about these problems? Yeah. And that's where Joe yeah. Biden has no answer whatsoever. No, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. And everything he is doing is making the situation worse. And then he just blames it on Putin. The problem, Lee, that I see is that right now, I mean, this is like Joe Biden is burning down the house. And we're like in the house. It's like an apartment building. And he set the top floors on fire. And we're like, man, this is a disaster. But what's eventually going to happen is this is going to become uninhabitable. And then what are we going to do? The long-term impact. Gas is not coming back to $2 a gallon. I don't think ever. I think $5 a gallon will be the new, I mean, if it can stay that low, you know, um, I mean, this is permanent damage that is being done here. And not only that, by, you know, the ruble keeps having these uh, new highs, U.S. dollar to ruble. Let's see what it is right now. The ruble is the strongest currency in the world. Oh, my God. So uh, $1, 53.63. Point six three rubles to the dollar. That is yes. very close to the all-time high. So this is adding strength to the Russian economy, weakening the U.S. dollar, and it has fractured the admittedly unsustainable Ponzi scheme of the petrodollar. And uh, you know, Biden, Biden has taken a side in the internal war in the Saudi Arabian royal family, and he is on the side of the family that is not in power right now, the side of the people who want to challenge Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, I'm talking about um, Al-Walid and Jamal Khashoggi but, and all of these guys. But to be fair, Joe Biden would be on the side of any side in Saudi Arabia that took his calls. Well, right, because but see... They, they, remember that? They didn't take his call. Yeah. Then they're not going to because he's on the side of the people who are not in charge of Saudi Arabia is his problem. And they don't want to take his call because they know what he's all about. They, keep in mind, you know, Joe Biden was in the Senate when the decision was made to arm the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union. Everybody has seen that famous picture of Jamal Khashoggi holding the man pad, the RPG shoulder mounted missile. And I just don't believe that the United States would say, oh, yeah, let's just randomly take a picture of anybody. That was published in something called Arab News, which reeks of being some kind of State Department publication. And he's pictured in a, in a feature that shows a picture of Khashoggi. And then the next picture is Osama bin Laden. So I think we've got a cabal of individuals who have worked with various clandestine factions within the United States government for decades and people fall out of favor, alliances shift, etc. And what's happening right now is that Saudi Arabia is under control 
by a group within the royal family that is not down with Joe Biden and his buddies, and Joe Biden is left flat-footed. Well, I said today that uh, the problem with unreality is it's got a limited lifespan. Right. Unreality, having a policy totally based on fantasy, eventually has consequences. And what we're seeing is the consequences of a completely non-reality-based policy. And it's, it's having huge consequences for the country as a whole and our standing in the world. Yeah. I've never seen, we look like a joke. And yeah, I'll tell do. you who we look like a joke to. None of what they said at the G7, I'll tell you who it didn't fool. It may have, it didn't really fool them, but it may have fooled the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN who reprinted it. But for sure, it did not fool Russia. Yeah. Everything they said at G7, if I was Russia, I would feel like, well, okay. <laughs> They're not. No, I mean it. They're not in reality I at all. I agree. I agree. I agree. Okay. So do we, do we have Wyatt on the phone, Command Central? Okay. Can we go to break? Okay, yeah. So, Jason, let's go to a short break. When we come sure. back, Wyatt Reed will explain more U.S. foreign policy magic that's going on in Ecuador. Mm. Are you aware of that situation, Jason? Uh, vaguely, I want to hear more from Wyatt, for sure. Yeah, well, you get details from someone who's there on the ground. Yeah. Or was. He's he's split. He's in Madrid now, right. where the Sangria is. But when we come back, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll hear from Wyatt Reed in Brazil. Oops. In, in Madrid. I, I put him in a country he wasn't even in. I'd rather be in Brazil. Uh, but the sangria is good in Spain. I'm very popular in Brazil. Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back <laughs> Wyatt Reed on the backstory. Backstory and on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in the capital of the Empire of Lies. We're joined right now by Sputnik Special Correspondent Wyatt Reed, who's coming to us from Madrid, where he's there for the NATO conference that's going to be happening over the next few days. But he was just in Ecuador, so let's talk to him. Hey, Wyatt, how you doing? I'm great, Lee. How about yourself? Now, you've been... Uh, now, Wyatt, do you have stuff to talk to us about Ecuador? I I, I could, uh, but I think it might be more relevant or more, more engaging, I think, for us to go over what's happening here in Madrid over, over the past day. Okay, let's talk about that in one second. Let's just update, because there is a lot of news even in the past few hours in Ecuador, and there's been riots and protests. 
And this is a U.S. allied government. So just do a minute or two on Ecuador to get that out of the way. Right. Um, well, so the situation in Ecuador uh, has continued to uh, develop. We know that there is now finally a dialogue taking place in between the indigenous-led protest movement and the uh, U.S.-backed government of Guillermo Lasso, uh, the neoliberal regime, which has uh, been facing off with about two weeks' worth of uh, heavy protests, not just in the capital of Quito, uh, but all throughout the country. It's uh, not entirely clear just what exactly uh, the outcome will be here. We haven't seen a whole lot of uh, movement from the government so far. They uh, reportedly agreed to meet the protesters in the middle, and as by way of compromise, they uh, they decided that they would reduce the price of gasoline by ten cents a gallon, which is approximately one fifth of what protesters were asking, and that of course is only one out of ten demands. Uh, which protesters have leveled, uh, have have uh, been asking for, I should say, here uh, over the past few weeks. Uh, there are a number of other important demands involving things uh, like uh, education and involving things like price controls for uh, basic goods, for foods, which have uh, shot up in price over the past uh, special, especially over the past few months, but really over the past several years as inflation has taken hold. Okay, thanks for that update on what's going on in Ecuador. Now, when did you get into Spain, where the NATO conference will be, Wyatt? I got in here today about, uh, I am, this time zone thing is killing me, but I want to say about uh, eight to ten hours ago. Now, the NATO conference is coming right after the G7, the leaders of the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Germany, a number of France, a number of major, the seven, the G7, the seven countries that make up the G7 met in the Alps above Bavaria. And how is, they're, they're coming right into the NATO conference from there. So, how are the reviews on how the leaders of the G7 countries did in a, in at their G7 conference in the Alps? Uh, you mean my personal reviews? <laughs> well, well, your personal review and also what are you seeing in general from the world press? Well, the main story right now is that Turkey has officially lifted its uh, refusal to allow Finland and Sweden into NATO, which paves the way for Sweden and Finland to join NATO within the next two, three days, probably will happen here uh, in Madrid. They're here as observers. Uh, Turkish President Recep Erdogan said that Turkey got what it wanted after this deal that just came out here in the past couple hours. Uh, the, The foreign ministers, Turkey, Finland, Sweden, signed a memorandum of understanding that will pave the way for them to be subsumed into NATO. Um, And that followed a meeting between the country's heads of state. So uh, the Finnish president said that while the, uh, quote, concrete steps of the process 
will be agreed by the NATO allies during the next two days, that decision, they say, is now imminent. So we can expect effectively an expansion of NATO, uh, you know, while basically, you know, the whole point of this meeting, according to Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, was that uh, they're here, all these NATO countries are here to send a message of unity in line with democracy, security, and international order, uh, which is something that the Spanish Prime Minister claimed is based on rules that Putin and the Russian Federation have blown to smithereens. Uh, but we see, I think, with this NATO expansion, exactly what that so-called unity was based upon, which is the ever-increasing militarization of Europe. Um, so in terms of this particular, the, the nitty-gritty of this deal, uh, the Turks got from uh, Sweden and Finland, they got a concession for those countries to lift their arms embargoes on Turkey. Uh, they will support the Turks on the PKK group and stop supporting YPG, which is the armed uh, or, uh, political offshoot, I should say, of that uh, Kurdish-backed group. They, all these countries will amend their laws on terrorism and share intelligence with each other, and they've agreed to extradite terror suspects. And Turkey, Finland, and Sweden will reportedly establish a permanent joint mechanism at all levels of government to deal with these matters, justice, security, uh, and intelligence-type issues. Uh, so that's really the headline news here is just uh, NATO has apparently spawned a couple new appendages. But uh, let's let's talk about that for a second. Will there be any blowback, you think, from the Kurds? The Kurds are going to feel very used by the Western allies. The U.S. used the Kurds to do their fighting in Syria. And then when things got bad with the Kurds, threw them under the bus. Was this a case of Sweden and Finland throwing the Kurds under the bus for Erdogan? Well, absolutely. It's almost impossible to interpret it in any other way. I mean, these are countries that historically have had incredibly, you know, positive ties with these uh, Kurdish rebels. They have uh, taken them in and basically given them space to carry out their political activities within Europe. All that seems to have been swept away uh, under the guise of some kind of real politic agreement. Uh, it's hard to imagine the Kurds at this point, you know, uh, really really, especially in Syria, uh, dealing with anyone other than the president of Syria, uh, Bashar al-Assad. So yeah, I think, I think that's exactly how they will be taking it. I think that's how many of their allies and their supporters in the West will be taking it. Although, uh, you know, how many of those were real allies and how many of them were fair weather friends who are now kind of all aboard the Ukraine bandwagon, I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, and also, the governments of Finland and Sweden, how do the people factor into their decision to join NATO? There were no referendums done. And they didn't ask the people what they thought, right? Will that have any blowback of people feeling like the criticism I've heard from some people in Finland and Sweden is they don't see what's in it for them? So does this make Finland or Sweden any safer, in your opinion, Wyatt? 
I can't see how it does. If anything, it makes them more vulnerable and it, it makes them open themselves up to some type of escalatory action uh, by Russia at some point in the future. It's not the kind of situation where, you know, Putin was threatening to invade Finland or Sweden or really, you know, I don't think there's anyone reasonable can make any kind of case that that was something that uh, that Russian President Vladimir Putin had his uh, his eye on. And uh, I mean, in terms of the actual popularity, well, uh, as is the case throughout much of Europe, uh, people have largely been kind of falling in line with the propaganda um, that that tells them basically Russia is some kind of existential threat to them in their way of life. So uh, they do have majority support for going into NATO in these countries, as crazy as that sounds, uh, as crazy as it sounds to to basically volunteer yourself for some kind of military conflict that's uh, unnecessary. I mean, it'll it'll be interesting to find out here in the next few months um, when those countries realize what that military spending entails um, and what rather that level of military spending entails for their social spending. You know, we're talking about these Nordic countries that many people in the West like to hold up as some kind of uh, example for how how we should all live. Uh, but of course, they, they have these nice social programs, which they're able to afford uh, in large part because they don't spend massive amounts of their budget on uh, military expenditures. Um, so that, of course, is going to change. And I think, you know, as as people realize that the nice things that they had are starting to dry up, I think you might see some of that support for uh, subsuming themselves into NATO dry up as well. But why? Wasn't it just a month ago that Putin said outright that Russia would respond if NATO military infrastructure was deployed into Sweden and Finland? Uh, he he may have said something along those lines. I, I don't know what the I don't think we've heard an, an official reaction from the the Russian side on this development just yet. But it's definitely a very provocative move right. uh, by the part of on the part of NATO, on the part of Sweden, on the part of Finland. I I know that they know that uh, this is not going to be taken lightly. That it's going to be taken as a provocation. And and my point was, whatever the polling shows. In the media, because the media does the polling and prints it, the fact that they didn't have a referendum in Sweden or Finland, I think there's a reason they didn't have a referendum. And I think that people will later, we hear about how the Western countries are example of democracy in action. But I think the lack of referendum is very telling. Do you agree with that? Why? Well, absolutely. I mean, I don't think any of these countries really want to give their people a chance to have a sincere dialogue on what it means to join one of these uh, so-called defensive alliance that, you know, we've seen deployed in offensive ways uh, throughout the Middle East, uh, most notably in in Libya, in which the uh, administration of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton effectively returned open-air slave markets to the African continent. So that's, you know, that is effectively, that's what NATO has done. Uh, I suppose there is some nonsensical or sort of fantastical world where NATO exists to do something else, where NATO actually exists in a purely defensive uh, uh, orientation. But in the real world here, you know, that's not the case. 
Um, so you have to engage in a lot of propaganda. You have to engage uh, in a lot of brainwashing to be able to push people into that position of thinking that this is somehow in their best interests. Um, and that, you know, that's that that comes down to the, what we've all seen over the past four months, which is just incessant uh, messaging, incessant narrative control that over and over basically uh, clomps you on the head with this this notion that Vladimir Putin is coming to kill you and your family and he wants to take away your gas too. And you know, <laughs> he's basically just, just jumping at, jumping at the bit to ruin your standard of living. I mean, it's total nonsense, of course. Uh, but to acknowledge that would be to acknowledge the reality, which is that European leaders and Western leaders are basically chomping at the bit to re- destroy their own populations living standards. I mean, that's what we've seen over the, over the past few months. Uh, gasoline prices across the globe. You know, I, I'm seeing the same thing here in Madrid that I saw uh, in Colombia and in Ecuador, which is people can barely afford to fill up their tanks. You know, you talk to taxi drivers, they're barely able to make ends meet. And all of this is has uh, secondary effects in terms of food prices that affects everyone. And you know, there's 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 really no way to address this, the reality, and be faithful and be truthful, uh, and and tell that tell that story. So instead, we see uh, these narratives that are being pushed to generate the kind of situation that we're seeing right now, which is further militarization of Europe, supposedly in the name of peace. But also, yeah. Russia's winning, and I I I got to emphasize this point. Russia's winning. You, Sweden and Finland, you're not joining a winning team. You're joining the team that is getting their butt handed to them. And <laughs> how many spying photo ops does exactly, I mean, is it is it a dozen? Is it 20? Is it 30? How many sp- smiling photo ops equal a military victory? <laughs> well, that's a great yeah. question. I mean, what is the what is the conversion rate? between, you know, between Zelensky Oscar appearances, Zelensky, you know, film, uh, you know, uh, Grammys, yeah, all that and, stuff. And, and how, how does that actually convert into military tactical victories? Uh, well, I mean, we're in the age of hybrid war. We're in the age of, you know, sort of post-truth reality, where as long as you can convince enough people that something is true, it may as well be. Uh, and I mean, I think that's kind of the attitude that much of the West has had throughout this, uh, throughout the, the Russian special military operation in Ukraine, uh, which is basically, you know, if we're losing, fine, we'll just make it up. And I mean, I think that's what you see with uh, the most recent developments where supposedly a thousand people were, were killed yesterday. And then we find out later, well, it was 13 and they were all men of military age and you know don't think too much about that but uh you know <laughs> here we are well no now no, no, this is a weird analogy but sweden and finland joined nato at this time jason do you remember mike tyson's fight against evander holyfield yes the fight where tyson the bit ear. holyfield's ear Yes. And then was later disqualified from the fight. Yes. Yep. So this is as though Sweden and Finland, after Tyson bit Holyfield's ear, they didn't 
it's not like they joined Team Tyson. It's like they joined <laughs> Team Ear. It's like they joined the Ear. <laughs> yes, yes. Funny so story. Now, I, I, I know the doctor who was Evander Holyfield's doctor for the Ear. Right. So, so he worked on him. <laughs> I think we're yeah. going to need him over here in Madrid sometime soon. Yeah. Yes. Now, now, uh, uh, so, so they're going to get their smiling photo op with Sweden and Finland. But meanwhile, people are going to be cold this winter in Europe, right? Well, absolutely. I, I mean, this is the, I think, a big part of this NATO summit is going to be oriented around exactly that, about how do we how do we come up with and fill this massive gap in terms of the energy, which we're desperately trying uh, to stop relying on Russia for? Um, and I mean, if you if you saw that that uh, hot mic moment between French President uh, Macron and Joe yes. Biden yesterday, I don't know how they're going to fill the gap. They said that uh, the UAE has no more capacity. They said the Saudis can maybe pump out another 150,000 barrels a month. Beyond that, who knows? Probably not. So there's certainly not, uh, at this point, it's it's unclear whether that uh, that energy even exists. And now you see Macron saying that he's going to, he thinks we should turn to Iran and Venezuela, which have, you know, been these pariah states, which the West has demonized for years and years and years as supposedly authoritarian dictatorships. Um, now you see that that was apparently all for show because now the West is perfectly happy to consume uh, their energy when it's politically convenient. I mean, here in in Madrid, uh, NATO seems to be kind of a hindrance on people's lives just in terms of tr attempting to walk throughout the city. It's basically impossible. The whole thing has become militarized. Getting back to the hotel required me to walk uh, basically around 15 blocks all the way around in a massive horseshoe. I mean, I think that's that's kind of normal people's experience with these kinds of events. They don't really know what they are. They don't really know why they're happening. They just know that they complicate their lives. And then in a few months later, they find out that uh, they have screwed them and they're now going to be forced to pay even more for fuel, uh, more for food, and all in the name of, of supposed democracy in a country which is just banned basically all of its opposition parties. Well, you just said now, something very important, was, though, White. You pointed out that it was a hot mic moment. Mm. And what it sounded like to me, because neither of them were really wearing mics, it sounded to me like somebody was far away from them with a parabolic shotgun mic. So they were picking up the audio, and these guys had no idea the mic was around. It seemed mm -hmm. like Macron was sharing something with Joe Biden that he did not intend for the public to know. What do we think of that? Well, absolutely. And then I, I believe it was Anthony Blinken uh, that came over and ushered them away and said, you know, there's cameras here, which is just, right. I mean, this is the French messing things up for NATO as usual. I mean, this is something that they've been doing for for a long time, if, especially with regards to the, to the Ukraine conflict. I mean, the French have been giving away the game. They've given up, according to the Ukrainians, numerous uh, GPS coordinates on accident. They, at one point, a few months ago, a French outlet uh, explained in an, an article 
uh, type titled Inside the Kiev Territorial Defense Unit, uh, they actually admitted that this territorial defense unit was headquartered in the, inside a shopping mall. Um, so basically, you know, the French are doing what the French do best, which is just uh, accidentally kneecap NATO. Now, hmm. Wyatt, you're our correspondent, special correspondent there. W- what is your coverage going to look like? Do you expect protests, for instance, any protesters on the streets there outside the NATO conference? So where I am currently, I do not know about any protest. I know there were big protests over the past couple of days, and I certainly expect many more. Thousands of people came out to protest yesterday, uh, and I expect to to speak to a number of the groups that are involved in that. Uh, we Europe, for whatever reasons, does still have a, a, a significant and highly committed block of anti-NATO organizers, people who don't want to become involved in what they see as the America's wars and what they see as America's security uh, organization. So I definitely expect to hear uh, from a number of protesters over this week. And, and I think, um, you know, I certainly don't want to speak for anybody in advance, but I imagine they'll have uh, quite a bit to say. And I know you just got there, but... What are conditions like in Spain? What, what's is there food shortages yet? Are the gas prices high, etc.? Et well, f- food prices have risen significantly. Uh, you definitely get that sense talking to people. Gas prices the same. We know that Spain uh, is one of these countries that has chronically high unemployment. That uh, doesn't have a whole lot of hope for the younger generation. So you see increasing numbers of kids going abroad for, uh, you know, what they see as better prospects for their future. I certainly can't uh, imagine that things will get better here in the short to intermediate term uh, unless there's some kind of settlement, unless there's some kind of negotiated uh, outcome here that allows for Europeans to get access to clean and cheap and, you know, affordable energy from a reliable source, as opposed to uh, the United States, which has now become the Spain's largest energy supplier over the past couple months. Uh, that doesn't come cheap. Shipping liquid natural gas does not come cheap. We have to go because we're out of time, but great report as usual and a great conversation. Hopefully we we'll talk, talk to you in a couple of days after you settle in there. Wyatt Reed, special correspondent for Sputnik. When we come back, we'll have more with Jason Goodman on The Backstory. We are back from the Empire of Lies for the second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, joined by my guest co-host, Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth. This is the backstory. And Jason, was it not always a good conversation with Wyatt Reed? Yeah, no, he's, he's very good. And he's right in there, you know, on the ground, learning all this stuff firsthand. And coming up this hour, we have your friend, the esteemed 
Charles Ortel. I don't like making it seem like just your friend. He's not a guy you go right. bowling with. Have you right. ever been bowling with him, actually? Uh, you know what? I have a titanium screw in my wrist that has made bowling extremely uncomfortable, so I haven't been in a long, long time, and I'm not sure that bowling is something that Charles does. Okay. Ha-ha. <laughs> we got to the bottom of that mystery. That's why I'm an investigative journalist. But we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. And Jason, get a gravelly voice. Go full Liam Neeson on this one. What's the name of the show? This is the backstory. Now, we talked about it with Wyatt. But here's what I think. Whatever polling numbers are now, I think... Here's my prediction, and it's a pretty safe one, and I like safe predictions. In the next few weeks, there are going to be more headlines about Russian military victories in Ukraine. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Because they're happening, and there's nothing that's stopping them from happening. And we talked about this yesterday with Scott Ritter. Morale is very bad with Ukrainians. And... They don't have their best soldiers out there. So whatever weapons they get, they have scared people not trained on the weapons, firing them and then running. So there'll be more Russian military victories. Fair headline prediction, Jason? I mean, yeah. could you imagine, Lee, if somebody gave you and me a javelin missile and was just like, hey, man, just go like shoot any. I mean, of course, that's dangerous and scary. Who would want to get involved in that? And don't worry about the planes that are going to be bombing you. Yeah. And right. the tanks. Right. That's OK. We've got these people here in the mall. They can protect you. But <laughs> the, the other headlines that I guarantee you, there will be more reports of Russian atrocities. Right. Well, fake, and of fake, Russia, right, right. I said reports of Russian atrocities. Right. They never right. report the real atrocities that Ukraine's committing, ever. But, and that's a safe prediction. But you'll also see more reports of Russian economic catastrophes. Do you, you see the headlines now? Russia is failing to pay a sovereign debt. I did see that. And then something else about gold. What, what's going on with that? What's going on is Russia, like all countries, puts out bonds, okay? They issue yeah. bonds. Mm -hmm. And other countries buy them. Does that make sense? And yeah. what they've done now, the West has made it impossible for Russia to pay back their bonds in Western currency. So if they owe someone money on their debt, they can't pay it back in the West, not because they don't have the money, but because they're not allowed to pay it back. You with right. me? Yeah, yeah, so it's a, another one like of these it, tricks. Right, it'd be like if you had a credit card and you had lots of money, but I, cancel your credit card. And yeah. so then you couldn't pay your car payment, even though you had the money. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, or if you went to the, you know, the Ford place and said, well, here's the cash. And they said, well, but we don't accept cash. And you said, well, how about gold? We don't accept gold. How about rubies? We don't accept rubies. They just will not take the money. Right. And other countries, how would losing this, not being able to, actually not being able to pay the debt would look bad. But that's not what's happening. And the people who buy and borrow and lend money on a national basis know what's happening. They're not being fooled by this. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, they're Russia. also probably losing money because they've got this outstanding debt hanging there. Exactly right. In, in fact, they're saying we're the ones being hurt by this. Russia's not right. paying us, but they have yeah. the money. Right. So Russia keeps the money and the people who owed the money can't get it. And they're pissed off. And they're going to, it's called force majeure. And right. they're going to start suing the U.S. government. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Force majeure is like one of these like act of God kind of things where, or what is that meaning? A provision in a contract that frees both parties from obligation if an extraordinary event directly prevents one or both parties from performing. Yeah, that's it, a good point. It seems like Joe Biden is stupid as hell. No, and, and this is done to fool People who read the New York Times or the Washington Post and don't know anything about finance. Or common sense. (laughs) And so that's what's going on there. On the gold, what's happening is uh, they've made it illegal for Western countries to buy Russian gold. But Meanwhile, Japan, I mean, China, India, they can still buy Russian gold. Right. So, and then guess what? Once they have it, it becomes Chinese gold. (laughs) Once the Chinese have it. Right. That's exactly right. And it hasn't changed the demand for gold. Does that make sense? Down. Well, the price of gold seems, well, it's up a dollar today, but it's kind of lower than it's high. So it's another one of those moves that won't affect Russia. They still have major markets like China and India, who if they want to buy gold, they can. Uh, So everything the U.S. is doing, but but they got a good photo op out of it. Does that make (laughs) sense? At the G7, right. At the G7, come on, everyone, put your thumbs up for Russia not being able to sell gold to us. Smile, thumbs up. Come on, Macron, smile. Smile, you bastard. But, <laughs> and this is not going to affect Russia. And so they got a one day half a photo op and headline out of it. But anybody who knows what's going on, in fact, we won't want to ask Charles about this because he knows finance. Way better than yeah. me. Certainly me. But so, let's go to calls first, because mm-hmm. who is there? To what he did there? Owl Killer? <laughs> it's got to be Owl Killer, yeah. 202-521-1320. Go ahead. You're on, Owl Killer. I think it's pretty obvious that they're setting up two parallel uh, new New World Orders. And... Um, you know, we 
Yeah, putting a ban on Russian gold, there's enough gold in South America and uh, in Canada. That's where most of the gold in the United States comes from. If you see it minted, it comes from Arizona and Canada for the most part. Um, there's a web, uh, website, um, com. They make 24-carat gold jewelry, and all their, all their gold comes from Arizona and from Canada. Uh, it's all uh, North American, and it's manufactured in the United States. So that it's not. It wouldn't affect us one way or the other. But do you think Russia wants to sell gold right now? They want gold because that's, that's real money. They they want gold and they they have oil. Like and they have enough gems that if they were to flood the market, they would destroy diamonds. They're actually paid to not to not mine their diamonds. They're so. I mean, it, it, it's just a. It's just a stunt to make it to try to hurt uh, Russia financially but it's the same thing when they were trying to put the when they put the oil sanctions on all it did was drive the price of oil in the west up more so th- this is what happens when you have degenerates and uh you know people that were on third base and think they hit a triple they they, they make this they make decisions off the whim like this and it only ends up how, that's another that's what i mean how can you continuously make the same mistake? How can you always be wrong? How can you only hurt your people? Are they are they that are they that stupid, or are they just they're just trying to bring the United States down? Well, Al let me offer this possible explanation. They have no feedback system to know they're stupid. When Joe Biden picks up the New York Times or the Washington Post is not greeted with op-eds going, this is clearly stupid. Now, <laughs> the Washington Post and the New York Times has plenty of people smart enough to figure this out because it's not that tricky. So I'm not saying they're geniuses there, but it's obvious. This is obvious. But there's no feedback system. When Joe Biden flips over CNN... Or even Fox. Fox, I don't see out there starting the headline. This is stupid. It's not going to work. See, even if I was in favor of American sanctions, this is not going to work. There's no way in which this is a real sanction. And by the way, this is round seven since the start of the military action of seven of sanctions, I mean. Round seven. And it's just making Russia more powerful. Obviously. Look at the price of the ruble, as you pointed out. There's no, and look at how the military action's going. So Mm -hmm. I think the lack of a feedback system, because the feedback system is pushed by the establishment. So they have no feedback system that gives them reality. Does that make sense? Our killer. It, it makes sense for the the idiot. That's it, it makes sense for the idiot that's parroting it. Yes, but the people around have to know. And you can ignore reality, but you can't ignore the consequences of reality. The consequences of reality just turned a district in Texas that had been Democrat for seventy years Republican. So they. That's why. Well, well, okay, let me disagree with you slightly, Al Color. You can ignore reality, the consequences of reality, for an indefinite amount of time. You can ignore it 
for instance, drinking heavily is bad for you eventually, right? And no one can or tell when your spleen's going to give out or whatever. No one's going to... You can't ignore it. But, but you, you can't ignore it for a while, right? Agreed? Yeah. Until, until you're until you're dead, or until you until you collapse or in the hospital, you're you're going to know that there's something physically wrong with you, and there's something there is something wrong. There's something wrong with the cost of everything. There's something wrong in the country. Like you, you can't. All you all they're doing is blaming external. They're noticing. They're recognizing the problems, but they're trying to. They're trying to blame external enemies for their for their actual incompetence or their deliberate uh, moves. Um, I, I wanted to, so that, that's what I mean when you can't ignore, when I say you can, you, yes, you can technically, I guess, choose to ignore reality, but they're, they're, all, they're recognizing the consequences of their action. They're just trying to blame something else for what's going on in the country. And that's why. You know, what I'd say is they, it's a lack of a feedback system. If you've heard the phrase, if you've got a hammer, every job looks like a nail, right? Right. So, if you're an alcohol, if if you're an alcoholic, and you go to the doctor, and he says you've got six months to live, your response will be to get drunk. Have a drink. Yes. <laughs> right. Does that make sense? Because it's bad news. So you just keep yeah. doing the same things, and. I think what we're doing is we're starting to hit the point where they can't ignore reality anymore. In fact, they can't. But they've been able to because uh, Gonzalo Lira, who I like a lot of his stuff, not everything, but Gonzalo was saying today that the problems in Europe are going to come from the migrant population. This winter, because you have people who are coming over there from Africa and the Middle East and who are newly in France, right? And he said they won't put up with a a lot of people, if they're indigenous French people, they they will get cold and won't riot. But some of the people... Right. But some of the people from foreign countries, and I, the, the 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 situation here, the U.S. is putting up with a lot, and we still, and and let's get to the clip. You know, there's outrageous stuff going on. Clearly, we have fascism in the United States. Let's play the clip. This is this guy Eastman who was a lawyer for President Trump, and he was raided. And let's play the clip of him talking to Tucker about it. Listen to this, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. What exactly did you do wrong to be treated like a dangerous criminal by your government that you pay for? Well, we don't know because the warrant doesn't say. It authorizes them to seize my phone and all the information uh, contained in the phone. But there's no indication of, uh, of, of any crime that this is connected to. Um, that's apparently in an, attach, in an affidavit, but the affidavit wasn't attached to the warrant. The Fourth Amendment's very clear here. Uh, when they search and seize your property, 
they have to give a particular description of the things to be seized. And you know, saying it's identified in the affidavit, if they don't attach the affidavit, doesn't qualify. The courts have been very clear about that. So this, this warrant is invalid on its face. Um, but more importantly, and I, and I think this is extremely important, the, the authority to seize all of my information in modern, modern smartphones, that's access to all my private financial records. I'm an attorney. It's access to all my privileged communications with nearly 100 different clients that I have currently. All, this stuff, this stuff uh, is what we used to call a general warrant that the British king issued to just go rummage through somebody's belongings to see if they could find evidence of some crime. The very reason we have the Fourth Amendment is to prevent that kind of abuse. And yet that's what they're doing here. And it's just another reminder to anyone who didn't vote for Joe Biden to erase your texts and emails every single day. And that is a sincere piece of advice I hope everyone follows. But they haven't charged you with a crime. They've given you no evidence that they're going to charge you with a crime. But they treat you like a drug kingpin or a rapist and seize your phone. Is this legal? I don't think so. And uh, they forced me in the position. Look, as an attorney, I have ethical obligations to do everything I can to protect the privileged communications with my clients. So we will be filing a, a, a motion. It's called a Rule 41 motion to retrieve my phone, to retrieve any information they've taken off of that phone that they have illegally seized from me. Now, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, and it's rhetorical, so don't go running outside your house. Don't leap out your window and take action, because there's nothing you can do. But you hear that, you listening in the audience, we live in a country where the Constitution means nothing, and the government in front of everybody is doing this stuff. This is the second story like this we've covered in a few days. The government is going in doing raids. You saw what happened to Roger Stone. You see what's happening with January 6th. Again, rhetorical question. What are you willing to do about it? And the answer is nothing. Everybody listening, their answer largely is nothing. And because they realize If they go protest about it, if you protest the wrong thing, if you protest in favor of George Floyd and bust a window, you're going to be treated differently than if you protest because you didn't like— Violations of the Fourth Amendment. Right. Exactly. And everybody knows that. And so this is what I mean. You see what I'm saying, Jason? Yeah, I mean, this is such a a big deal. It can't be overstated, Lee. It cannot be overstated. And let me point out that Joe Biden is, in a sense, doing exactly what I was expecting him to do. In the game of life, Joe Biden, you can make fun of him all day. You can say he he reads stuff on a little card. You can say he's old. He's rich and he's a president. Joe Biden won the game of life. Would you agree with that, Jason? Joe Biden, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Uh, The crackhead son and all of that stuff. I mean, he's on paper. He's got a lot of chips in the stack. That's for sure. I don't know if I would call it winning, but I get what you're saying. And there are people whose crackhead son is not making 80 grand a month. Exactly. uh, Even I'll put it like this. 
it's possible Hunter Biden won the game of life more than Joe Biden. Yeah. Now, have you seen the house he's renting in L.A.? Well, I, I was right outside the one in Venice Beach, but he had moved from there already, I think. by the t- Or no, he was still there when I when I saw it, but he moved out of that one. My guess was, was a pretty else. nice house, Jason. You saw yeah, it. You were, you yeah. were outside. Millions. Was it nice? Millions. Yes. You ever Venice lived in a house is, that nice? No. Very expensive. And again, I know people whose kids have had fentanyl problems. Oh. Right. And I, right. And yeah. I, I won't say I know people who took pictures of themselves, themselves naked with a gun with a crack whore. I don't know <laughs> anyone who's done that. No, but, no, me neither. <laughs> but but Hunter Biden, by all accounts, what I'm saying is Joe Biden, he's not he's not going to the gas station wondering whether he should fill up the car because he might not have enough money to buy meals until he gets paid on Friday. Does that make sense? Yep. That kind of pressure is deadly. Yes. And I think most people feel that kind of pressure. Yeah. The vast majority of them. I'm sure almost everybody listening can understand what it's like to get to the end of the week and you get paid in a couple of days and you don't have quite enough money to buy something. Right. Does that, I have, right? Looking at the you fridge, know, I, what do I got in the freezer that we could defrost for tonight? Yeah, those kind of decisions put a lot of pressure on you. That's right. And that's normal. And, and by person. the way, even saying that, I'm privileged. There's people who don't have something in the freezer to defrost for tonight. Yes. Th- their big decision is what flavor of ramen? Do I want spicy right. pork or regular right. pork? <laughs> right. And they're both 12 cents at the store. Oh, by the way, right. let me talk. It's peripheral. But then let's play this clip of this chick. I, I already don't like her. And I, I, I'm shallow. I'm shallow. But we're going to play a clip from this person who's an aide to Mark Meadows, who's speaking yeah. up against stuff he, she heard about Trump. And her name is Cassidy. And I already don't like her. Because I don't like girls who name Cassidy. Okay. Am I wrong? Okay. Jason? I I mean, I I don't know any girls named Cassidy, but it does sound a bit extravagant. Yes. And it's not her fault. I'm shallow. But, and I admit it, but the other big crisis, and Jason, I'm going to ask you whether you're familiar with it, and you might lie and say yes, because you're intellectually familiar with it. But I guarantee you, you are not physically familiar with it. Are you aware of the nationwide tampon crisis? Oh, yeah, I heard about it, yes. Yes, right. But have you been affected by the nationwide tampon crisis? Not at all. But you're aware there are human beings. There is a nationwide tampon crisis. Menstruating people, yes. Right, like the baby food crisis. I'm, I'm surprised the tampon crisis hasn't with Rovies versus Wade and guns available thanks to the Supreme Court, I'm surprised there hasn't been a shooting war over the tampon thing. Because mm. lots of yeah. women know how to shoot a shotgun. <laughs> but store shelves are bereft of tampons. Right, Jason? It's unbelievable. I haven't looked, but I have heard that, and it's unbelievable. Like, what 
is involved in manufacturing a tampon that there would be a crisis all of a sudden. Well, so I'll go straight from that tampon to Cassidy. This is yeah. a woman, she was an aide to Mark Meadows, and she's testifying. What she's about to testify to is not something in front of Congress. But Jason, I'm going to stress this. This is not something she saw. Unbelievable. Okay? That's called hearsay. She shouldn't even be allowed to testify to it. But this is something she heard happened. Ridiculous. Right? Yeah. Am I correct? Well, she wasn't in the limo with the president, that's for sure. She wasn't in limo. She, I, I hear lots of things, and not all of them are true. Yeah. But apparently the tampon crisis is affecting Cassidy and Nancy Pelosi <laughs> and Maxine Waters, or as she's called, Maxine Pat Waters. Uh, skip it, easy joke. But <laughs> let's hear the clip from Cassidy about what she heard happened. President had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby. He thought that they were going up to the Capitol. And when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it. It's not secure. We're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president says something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free. And so there's that testimony. And I didn't know you could testify to things that you didn't witness yourself. You're, you're right. Of course, it's called you should hearsay. not be able to. Yeah, you should not be able to. I mean, none of this is admissible under the federal rules of evidence. And this testimony that they're giving that is the pseudo- you know, court proceeding is just, uh, it's, it's tantamount to walking into a lawyer's house and seizing his phone without a properly completed warrant and just taking everything from it. The fact that that lawyer equated that to the actions of the king, I think people need to pay attention to what that guy is saying. And by the way, his little uh, Rule 41 motion there doesn't matter. You might get the phone back, but they already have. They can download all that information in an hour or less. Now, I heard that Cassidy raised her right hand and said, do you promise to tell the narrative, the whole narrative, and nothing but the narrative? <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I, I, I see the picture of her raising. Right. I didn't, I didn't see that myself, but I heard she said that. Yeah. I want to point out something else, Lee, because I'm looking online here at Cassidy Hutchinson, and there are a lot of pictures of her testifying today. She looks very nice. And I'm looking at a picture of her here from Yahoo News that says, who is Cassidy Hutchinson? And it shows her standing next to Kaylee McEnany, who I was very impressed with her as the White House press secretary. She was always prepared, always had that big organized loose leaf with lots of notes and everything. And, you know, I'm just noticing a really what I would describe as dramatic change in Cassidy's appearance. 
she looks much heavier in this photo with uh, Kaylee McEnany than she does in the photos of her today, almost as if she's undergone one of these like celebrity makeovers. You know, there's a Thor movie coming out now where apparently um, Natalie Portman has been, you know, working out for like 10 months to become a superhero. And it's a dramatic transformation. I see a similar type of body makeover transformation with this woman, Cassidy Hutchinson, to make her a TV darling. What's going on here, Lee? So you're expecting a reality show soon? Things Something's going on. Yeah, give her a podcast, a show, put her on The View, put her on MSNBC, something like that. So why don't we take a short break, Jason, and let's take a couple minutes, and when we come back, we will be joined by your friend Charles Artel. And we'll talk about all kinds of stuff on The Backstory. We're back on The Backstory. And on 105.5 FM, AM 1390, in Washington, D.C., on the radio. Joined now by guest co-host Jason Goodman. And Jason, wants you to do the intro on us? We're going to be joined right now by complex fraud investigator and financial expert, Charles Ortel. Hello, Charles. Hello, Jason. Hey, Lee. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Charles. Thanks That's for joining damn us. good, Jason, by the way. Well done on the intro. So, Charles, <laughs> we were talking before, and you obviously know a lot about finance, and I obviously don't uh, just look at my refrigerator, but we're talking <laughs> a lot about uh the, the current sanctions against Russia and about the thing that al- kept them from paying off some of their debt. And do you understand that situation? Because I explain it and I sort of understand it. But do you as a finance expert fully understand that situation? Well, I think I understand most of it. Um, last time I checked, uh, Russia actually does not have that much in the way of foreign debt. It does, unfortunately, have some foreign debt, and it's a big no-no to default. But Russia was trying to pay that uh, most recent payment. And the U.S. and our allies, I believe, frustrated an attempt by Russia to make the payment. Now, when you uh, launch sanctions against somebody, uh, you need to understand that sanctions only uh, create or exacerbate conditions in a black market. There's always an opportunist who will find a way, if Russia can't sell their oil on the world market, India or somebody in Dubai, and I'm not picking on the people in Dubai, but somebody will figure a way to buy the Russian oil and get it to a place and make a spread. So sanctions basically don't work. Ask the people of Cuba, ask the people of Iran. They're painful, but in the end, they don't work. And then go and look at what's happened since late February when special military operation was launched. Initially, the ruble weakened dramatically dramatically, but I believe from its uh, opening position, the ruble is is perhaps one of the strongest performing currencies around the world. So sanctions haven't worked that well. And the the approach of the United States and our allies, to me as a financial person, seems stuck on stupid. 
I mean, it's only uh, sending a very clear message to the Russians and to the Russian allies that we have no interest in reaching any kind of fair and negotiated settlement. We're just going to push and push and push until the breaking point. And if history is written in English or understood in English years from now, this period could well be seen as one where the Russians were provoked following the eight years shelling in Donbass by the Kiev government, um, now with this most recent chapter in 2022, um, we, we, could, we stand on the uh, right near a precipice where somebody could decide that we're never going to cooperate. The United States and the Allies are never going to reach a fair settlement. And so we go into a new and even more dangerous chapter in the struggle. Now, we're discussing this a bit last half hour. And, and this is one of the questions... It's more philosophical, but whose fault is it if our leaders keep doing stuff that's stupid? Is it the leader's fault for doing stupid stuff or our fault for putting up with leaders that do stupid stuff? Because you're right. The leadership seems stuck on stupid. That's the way to put it. But why do their leaders for a reason? Do you see any indication that people are going to stand up eventually against this corruption and stupidity? Charles? Uh, I certainly hope so, Lee and Jason. I mean, I think when we go back into the the history of the founding of America, um, we have to remember that there was a period under the Articles of Confederation, which I think was about seven years long, where our first form of government didn't work. The central government was too weak, put it simply. Um, and also, we, we <laughs> had been part of a very strong empire around the world, and we won. Uh, and Britain was not exactly pleased to see us uh, enter the world stage. So we were fighting strong headwinds. Um, when the present form of government under the Constitution came together in, I think, 1789, there's a lot written about what the founders thought. And we don't need to rely on Harvard, Yale, and Princeton and other blue-haired wokesters to tell us what they thought. The, the, these documents are written, they're in the public domain, we can read them for ourselves. And they fully contemplated a citizenry that would be actively participating in democracy. That's not what we have now. Despite the fact that there are so many uh, new ways of communication, communications are really controlled, the pipes are, are controlled by people who are selling one particular view, and that's a view, I think, of trying to get everyone to be comfortable with the new world order where citizens are told what to do and they're not citizens, they're subjects. So, so long as we sit and just quietly take the beatings, uh, morale is never gonna improve. On the other hand, I'm not suggesting anything other than peaceable um, uh, challenges here, but until the citizenry says, we're fed up, we've had it, we're not gonna take this anymore, we're not gonna allow the President of the United States and the leadership in the House and the Senate and the FBI and others to lie to us nonstop about what's truly going on when we can see the train wreck and the shipwreck and the plane wrecks across this country and the car wrecks across the country for what they are. Our educational system is destroyed. Our students are being taught nonsense. If you go to a private school, you're, you're going to go bankrupt unless you're a multimillionaire. Um, and I think it's time for the the American population, at least, to say enough. We've been told a tremendous, sold a tremendous bill of goods that we're actually paying for with borrowed money. And um, so the question is, can we make it through this summer, which despite all the talk of 
global warming is actually quite cool, at least in the Northeast. Can we make it through riot season? Will we make it through the election? Will the election be free and fair? And will the, the many concerns that I think are being expressed, not just by Republicans, but by Democrats who have bought buyer's remorse over not just the 2020 election, but I would dare say going back to 20, 2008, um, people are looking and they're seeing the raging inflation, the falling incomes, the rising costs, the rising crime, the open southern border, our international affairs in a wreck, our military clueless. And they're saying, you know, surely let's go just take a random collection of bums out of Washington Square Park in New York to probably do a better job drunk than this cabinet. Now, a lot of people talk about the war in Ukraine and Russia and point out correctly, they say that this goes back to 2014. But I'd actually argue, and I think you'd agree, but feel free to disagree, uh, that this actually goes back to the 90s under Bill Clinton, where the Soviet Union fell, and the U.S. under Clinton, with Larry Summers and people of that ilk, began a campaign of stealing Russian assets. They, After the Soviet Union fell, they began an organized campaign, and like I say, Harvard, Larry Summers, that whole that whole gang and and the Clinton administration and Strobe Talbot was specifically trying to steal Russian assets because the assets under communism obviously were owned by the state. And so when the Soviet Union fell, everything was up for grabs. The oil companies, the media companies, everything. It had all been owned by the state and had had to go into private hands. And the United States wanted to make sure a lot of it went into U.S. hands. Do you think that, am I describing it more or less, I'm describing it broadly, but anything am I saying is is in, inaccurate, you want to correct? And do you think that set the stage for what happened subsequently with Russia? Well, I'd actually dial it back a few years before 1992. I think, um, first of all, as far as Clinton, <coughs> excuse me, Clinton is concerned, if you uh, can stomach the turgid prose in the book, uh, My Life, uh, which is, is it's useful as a book because you can also use it as a paperweight or a doorstop. It's so heavy. Um, he goes on and on and on, revealing different nuggets of, of his life, key nuggets of his life. For example, before he went to run for president, uh, Ber- uh, Vernon Jordan asked him to go, I think, to the Bilderberg Conference in either 1990 or 1991, which is a gathering of all the billionaire uh, ancient families and, and uh, multinational managers and politicians. Um, and he, he brags that at the end of that conference, some friend of his asked him, would he mind going over to the Soviet Union to meet a few interesting people? I think it was in 91. Now, you didn't just go to the Soviet Union as the governor of Arkansas on a whim, right? And now you mentioned Strobe Talbot. Uh, Clinton and Talbot, of course, had been at Oxford together in the 60s and early 70s and were very active in theory in the anti-war, anti-Vietnam movement. And, of course, Talbot um, has deep experience in uh, the former Soviet Union and now uh, at least studying Russia. And... I think the whole idea of looting via privatizations is something that began 
certainly by the early 1980s in Western Europe. I think the gang you're talking about, Jeffrey Sachs, George Soros, people like that understood that, that it's tough to value a company that had been run into the ground by a government, be it the U.S. government, for example, postal assets, um, the British government, for you know, 80 to 90 percent of Britain was, pro- was in, controlled by the government in early 1980. And so there was a big process eventually under Thatcher where a whole bunch of privatizations there were mispriced. And I think that template was used throughout not only the former Soviet Union, but Central Europe and Western Europe, and to a certain extent here in the United States of America and elsewhere. This is an area I do have some experience with, that is to say, valuing companies. Um, if you have a company that's been losing a lot of money and uh, its history is horrible, you can fairly value that thing at nothing. But if, on the other hand, you know because you're politically well-connected that you're going to get a sweetheart deal from the former government, that is to say, in this case, Russia, that the former government will take a bunch of liabilities so that the buyer doesn't have to bear them, um, you can literally transfer billions or more into the pocket of the favored bidder. And I do think a team should, perhaps a cooperative team, not just from, from Russia, but from outside Russia, should go back over literally every single privatization transaction to understand were the assets fairly valued, were these really money laundering corrupt deals, and if so, who benefited? Folks like uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Sachs, I think, is one person who may not be uh, very well received in Russia now. He was all over this privatization stuff, I think, as certainly was Mark Rich, and there are many others. Charles, wasn't that exactly... And Lee, this is a good question for you as well. Isn't what Charles just described exactly what Putin suggested at the summit with Trump in Helsinki, that he wanted to help investigate these claims of Russian interference and that he suggested the United States could help them investigate Bill Browder and all the people who are involved in exactly what Charles is talking about? My answer to that is that Putin gets it in some ways, certainly better than I do. But in some ways, there are some things I see he's missing. And Putin even doesn't recognize how corrupt it is. For instance, I've talked about the old history with Ukraine and how the CIA goes back to the 50s with Mykola Lebed. I've never heard Putin bring that up. And Charles, do you know anything about someone from Ukraine admitting in a book that he recruited George Soros for the CIA. It's in a book. It's it's an obscure book, but he admits that he was with a group called Prologue, which was funded by the CIA, and he recruited George Soros to go with his foundation, International Renaissance, into Ukraine. He recruited him. He admits that in a book. But does that sound logical to you? Well, yeah. I mean, when we think about finance, to the extent people spend time thinking about it, what you hear about are your neighbor who put you know $1,000 into Apple in 1980-whatever, and today is worth $15 million or whatever the number is. You're, you, investing is, unfortunately, for the uninitiated, it's not simply about putting money into something, hoping it'll go up, to, up in value. It's very importantly also about Finding things that are overvalued, in my case, General Electric, 
and saying this thing is a, is a piece of, we will not use the word, um, and the market doesn't see it, it's valuing it at $400 billion. Let's put on a trade where if it goes down in value, we make money. And folks like George Soros are lethally good at understanding that. And why does that matter? In, when you're investing outside the U.S. and maybe now inside the U.S., in conditions of rising political instability, you have a lot more opportunity to make money, really both directions, going short and going long, especially if you have the inside scoop on what's really going to happen. For example, let's say that uh, some insiders knew that Zelensky was going to give up and uh, that there would be a peace negotiated this weekend in Istanbul, I'm just making this up, and that we'd wake up on Monday morning and war's over, uh, you know, peace is at hand, lasting solution with Crimea, people go home, whatever, the markets would explode higher in value. That happened. And if you knew that and could bet on Friday, put on big bets, not necessarily on stocks, in this case, you'd probably bet on sovereign debt around the world, um, you you just you can make an enormous amount of money on this, and that's what I'm afraid a lot of speculators around the world. And these might include, I might add, I'm not saying on this specific case, but these might include the central bankers. No, and and, and Charles, uh, I have a question for you. And I, again, if you don't know this, that's fine. But when I look at if if you're describing the world of politics to somebody who who didn't know anything about U.S. politics, you would have to discuss not just elected government and agencies of government, such as the State Department or the Department of Treasury, but you'd have to discuss places like the Brookings Institute. You'd have to discuss, for instance, Open Society Foundation, NGOs, and so on. As far as you know, does Russia have any equivalent to the vast world of NGOs that we have in the United States? Or is that a fairly U.S., Great British phenomenon? When did this world of NGOs start to come into power? Well, that's a great question. I think it was Montesquieu observed in, was it the 18th century, that... um or 19th, early 19th century, that, um, that it, one thing that was remarkable about the United States in its infancy was the degree to which there were what are today called so many charities in, in the spirit of volunteerism. In the United States, unlike uh, much of uh, formerly socialist Western Europe, uh, the, the NGO sector is huge. It's probably bigger in the United States than all but maybe five, six, seven countries in the world have total GDP for their country as big as our NGOs are. And unlike, uh, we can say that the SEC, Securities Exchange Commission, the IRS, um, does get involved looking at companies that are going the wrong way. But look at the financial crisis 2007 to 2009. How many people actually went to jail? It wasn't like what happened in Iceland where they threw almost everybody into jail who was involved with financial shenanigans. So in the not-for-profit world, uh, particularly not-for-profits that, let's say, are American operating internationally, that is a license to steal if you're a con artist. On the one hand, you can go around the world pretending you're giving money away and everybody will receive you. On the other hand, you can tell all your friends at home, look, I I'm a changed man. 
Remember Mike Milken had his problems, but now he's a philanthropist. Bill Clinton had his problems, philanthropist. John D. Rockefeller, philanthropist. And the IRS um, is certainly not well-equipped to tackle and to unscramble and tackle and prosecute charity frauds around the world. So I remember back in, I think it was around 2009, there was a controversy in Russia where I think Vladimir Putin decided to crack down on NGOs that were operating inside Russia for fear that they were corrupt um, and perhaps engaged in attempts to de destabilize the Russian political system. And I think he was probably correct to do that. We do none of that here in the United States. We have dirty Republican charities operating internationally. We have dirty Democratic charities. We have just plain old dirty charities. And nobody makes an example of these fake philanthropists. Yet, when we think about this country, um, that spirit of volunteerism continues. It's whether it's in a synagogue, in a Baptist church, an Episcopalian church, in a, in a mosque, it's the poor by way of income who give disproportionately to charity and give lots of money. When you add it up across over 300 million people, it's in the many hundreds of billions of dollars per year. And then the wealth of these charities is in the trillions of dollars. And Trump didn't police them. He should have. Uh, Biden is certainly not going to police charities. He's, that's in part how he's built the Biden family fortune through a series of crooked charities, in my view. So this is a, a, an area that really, I think, would unite the political spectrum here if, if we said, you know, enough of this. If you're going to be engaged in charity, you can't profit from it. That doesn't mean just money in your pocket. It means any kind of advantage, edge. And this is all set out in the IRS regulations, with which, which I'm pretty familiar yeah, of course, the headline today is that Ghislaine Maxwell got 20 years in prison. And she, of course, is the girlfriend of notable philanthropist Jeffrey Epstein. He, and he, he operated as a philanthropist. That's harder to say than it might seem. But <laughs> what was the role that Jeffrey Epstein played in the Clinton Foundations? Well, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Seinfeld, here we go. Uh, I'll just uh, before we, I'll answer the question in a second. But just one quick thing: the Babylon Bee had a field day moments ago on this one, saying that Jelaine Maxwell uh, was given a lenient sentence of just twenty years for her decades of service to national leaders around the world. Um, on the, on the question of Epstein, uh, he did put together, he made very small contributions to something called, I think, the White House Historical Association or the White House Endowment Association or something like that in the early 1990s. That's when he first figured out that by making, I think it was $10,000 donation, the charity involved was collecting a couple million a year. That would get him into a special meal at the White House where he, he, he met Hillary and I think possibly Bill as well. And from there, he, I, he probably figured out for modest money you can get to meet pretty important people and then hobnob with them. You, you get to con in contact with them. And next thing you know, you start doing for disgraced Bill Clinton after he leaves the White House and he needs friends, you help him rehabilitate his image. Remember, this is something that, that happened to Bill Gates as well. He was under fire before he set up the Gates Foundation for a variety of reasons. I think he was targeted for antitrust and ultimately nothing serious ever happened about that. <clears throat> but it's an old game for people who are on the wrong side of things to say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll reform myself publicly by setting up a charity. There are arguments 
is generally thought to be a poor decision to have your lawyer lie to a judge seeking leniency for sentencing of a crime where you've been found <laughs> guilty. Uh, that strategy tends not to work very well. But in the case of Epstein, um, his lawyers did just that. They they claimed credit. Either it was for Clinton Global Initiative or Clinton uh, Health Access Initiative or HIV AIDS Initiative. Uh, Epstein's lawyers argued he ought to deserve a lighter sentence because of the great work he did for those things, which you can see for yourself. They never existed lawfully. They were never organized. They never filed the required uh, annual reports. They lied on their applications for tax exemption. There are no audits for the global initiative or for uh, the early Clinton HIV AIDS initiative. And uh, people around the Clinton global initiative, Jelaine Maxwell included, who made an appearance arguing that uh, she was doing good works there with her Terramar Foundation, another fraud in my view. And Charles, Charles, we're out of time, but this has been a great discussion. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about just with this, including Alan Dershowitz's reaction when I mentioned this letter while I was yelling at him. We were about to hang up the call, and I mentioned this, and he really wanted to hear what I had to say about it. And Charles, great appearance. We'd love to have you back sometime. Jason Goodman, great job guest hosting, co-hosting, and thanks to Wyatt Reed. And hope it's a good time in Madrid in the next couple of days. We'll be back tomorrow. And thanks to all our callers on The Backstory.